In your Bibles, uh, if you would, as we continue our series uh, through the book of Romans, we come this morning to Romans chapter 6, and we'll be looking at Romans 6 verses 1 through 14. And uh, before we read, I invite you to bow with me as we ask for the Spirit's anointing on his word this morning. Let's pray together. Lord God, how good it is to be in your house to worship, to sing your praise, to celebrate, Lord, who you are and what you have done for us in Christ. We praise you, we honor you, we glorify you. And I pray now, Lord, that as we open up your word together, I pray that you, you would fill us with your spirit, O oh Lord, to give us cultivated hearts that would receive it, that would be transformed by it, changed by it for our good and for your glory. So Lord, we offer ourselves to you. We thank you for the truth of your word, for revealing yourself to us, and I pray that we would now come together under its authority to receive it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word from Romans chapter 6. We are transitioning into a new section of Romans with Romans 6, and I'm not going to say a lot about that now because I'll start the message by kind of giving us an overview again, but uh, Romans 6 uh, transitions, Paul begins to know that there hasn't been a single command up to this point, and now Paul will begin to to give us some exhortations and, and uh, implications about how everything he's laid out for us, about what God has done for us in Christ, impacts how we are to live. And so we kind of transition from justification uh, to sanctification here in chapter 6. So Romans 6, verses 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness, for sin shall no longer be your master, 
because you are not under the law, but under grace. You may be seated. So like I mentioned, I want to begin this morning by, by uh, taking another look at, at uh, the overview of the book of Romans. We did this way back when we started the series, and, and uh, I think it would be helpful at this point to, to look at it again to kind of see where we have been and, and where we're going. So the, the whole book, like I, I've said, the whole book is really about the gospel, um, that's the, the main overarching theme of the book of Romans and the gospel as we've defined before. The gospel is the good news of salvation for hell-deserving sinners through faith in the perfect righteousness and sacrificial death of Christ. That is what the, go- that's the, the gospel in a nutshell and that's what the book of Romans is about. And we can divide the book of Romans into sort of seven main sections. Uh, different people might divide it a little bit differently, but, but a, a sound way to do it is there's seven main sections to the book. And each major section reveals something of this gospel. And so we saw in the first major section that the gospel is the revelation of God's righteousness. So Paul says the gospel is, and this is really the, the theme verse in, in verses uh, 16 and 17 of chapter 1, the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes because the gospel reveals the righteousness of God, which as we have seen means how we are made right with God. The second major section reveals the need for the gospel, that we stand in need of the gospel because of the universal reign of sin that all of humanity, Jews and Gentiles alike, are all under the power of sin. The third major section is where we have been the last several weeks, and that is uh, this third section reveals the heart of the gospel, that we are justified by faith alone, that Adam's sin brought all of humanity uh, under the reign of death, But Christ came to bring justification and eternal life for all who believe. That's where we've been for the last several weeks, uh, focusing on this this theme of of justification, how we are made right with God and and what that means for our lives. And this morning, we begin the fourth major section, which reveals the hope of the gospel. In this section, like I mentioned, we transition then from justification to sanctification, And, and so how we gain righteousness, how we are declared righteous to, how we can grow in righteousness. And so we'll see more of that throughout these, these chapters, chapters 6 through 8. In the fifth section, Paul will present a defense of the gospel as he deals with the problem of Israel. In the sixth section, he will address the transforming power of the gospel and as he'll uh, give a lot of exhortations about Christian conduct. And in the last section, uh, he will give parting words for the advancing of the gospel. So again, where we are at today is in that transition between the third and the fourth section, moving from justification in chapter 5 to sanctification in chapter 6. And so I want to kind of zoom in just a little bit on that. If you remember uh, from last week, so I wanted to give just a little bit of a, a review of where we were last week in an introduction to chapter 6. So last week, Paul showed us in chapter 5 that, that in Adam, all humans are counted as sinners. And he said that the law was brought in not to make the problem of sin go away, but the law was brought in actually, according to God's purpose and design, one of his overarching purposes was to make sin increase. 
But then Paul ended by saying that where sin increased, grace hyper super abounded all the more. Remember, so if, if, if uh, sin is, is like a sort of a slowly expanding puddle, then grace is like this, this flood that just gushes and overwhelms. Where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. But Paul anticipates an objection to this doctrine of grace. And so the objection goes like this. Well, doesn't this, this doctrine of grace, doesn't such an emphasis, a focus on grace, doesn't it give us a license to sin? Doesn't it sort of, you know, undermine obedience and sanctification? As Paul puts it at the beginning of Romans 6, he says, Well, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? You know, should we just re- remain in our sin? That's what the, what the, the NIV where it says go on sinning is really is a translation of a Greek word that means remain. Shall we just remain in our sin? Shall we remain sinning? Should we just stay there since God's grace gets poured out all the more and he'll be glorified through the uh, lavishness of his grace? Why not? Should we just then keep on sinning? And Paul gives an, an emphatic answer to that question in verse 2. He says, by no means. It is a translation of a Greek expression that is hard to capture in English. It's me genoito. And, and it's a, some, version, some translations try to get at it. It's just this sort of this emphatic, like, like yelling kind of a, uh, God forbid, may it never be, uh, that, that's unthinkable, absolutely not. All these, there's different ways to try to get at the force of this, but the idea is that we must not remain in our sin. It is unthinkable to remain in our sin. We, we, we must not presume upon grace and get comfortable with sin. So that's how Paul begins chapter 6, and, and in the rest of the text, he really gives us uh, the rationale behind that response. Well, uh, you know, so he, he states very clearly up front, absolutely not, we must not remain in our sin. Now he goes on to, to really address two main questions in chapter 6. Number one, why must we not remain in our sin? And number two, how then should we live? And so that's what we're going to look at this morning as well. So first, Paul addresses the question, why must we not remain in our sin? And he gives two very closely related answers to that question. The first answer is because we have died to sin. Paul says, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase by no means? Why? Here's the reason. Because we are those who have died to sin, uh, how can we live in it any longer? Now, when Paul says that we have died to sin, he does not mean that we have become immune to sin's influence or power. There are some who seem to think that way. There's some even uh, translations that kind of hint at that by saying that we are now immune to sin's power. That's not what Paul is saying. He's not saying that we will never again be tempted by sin or that we will never again give in to sin's temptation, that we, will, that we should just, uh, every believer should expect to stop sinning from the moment you believe. That's not what Paul says. He's very, in fact, the rest of Scripture is very clear that we will continue to sin. And we are only setting ourselves up for massive amounts of guilt and shame and disappointment if we think otherwise. No, that's not what Paul is saying. The context of Romans 6 makes it clear that when Paul says we have died to sin, this is what he means. He means that we no longer are under the ruling power of sin. 
That's really important for us to keep in our minds, not only here, but as we make our way forward throughout Romans as well. That when we have died to sin, Paul means that we are no longer under the ruling power of sin. We are still influenced by sin. We still succumb to sin's temptations now and then, but it is no longer our master. It doesn't have to rule over that it did when we were not in Christ. And Paul makes this clear, I think, in verse 6 when he says, For we know that our old self was crucified with Christ so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. So when we are united to Christ in faith, something radical happens. So deep is our union with Christ that when he was crucified, when when he was crucified at the cross, our old self was crucified with him. The power of sin that, that ruled over us in Adam. In Adam, we were all slaves to sin and under sin's dominion. And, and when Christ was crucified, that, that power of sin that ruled over us in Adam was defeated. Our bondage to sin was broken. And so we have gone from those who were slaves to sin to those who have been freed from its tyrannical rule. That's what Paul is, is saying. And Paul says that this, this death to sin's ruling power is what is symbolized when believers are baptized. So he says... Verses 3 and 4, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried with him through baptism into death. So when we were joined to Christ in faith, the ruling power of sin became dead and buried to us. The death of Christ not only released us from the penalty of sin, that's justification, you know, canceled the, 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 the debt of, of, that, that we owed as a result of sin, that debt was canceled, and so we were released from the penalty of sin, justification. It, but the death of Christ not only did that, it also broke the power of sin to rule over us, that sanctification. It gave us the, 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 the power through the Holy Spirit to actually grow in righteousness. That's what Charles Wesley, in that, 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 that uh, line of that, that hymn that we often sing, he breaks the power of canceled sin, right? Canceled sin is, the, is justification that we were made, declared right before God, but he goes beyond that. He gives us the power to do sanctification, to break the power of sin to rule over us. It is absurd to think that believers would go on living under sin's rule. That's the kind of the sentiment of Paul. He says in verse 7, anyone who has died, to, who, who has, died has been set free from sin. And so we, we must not remain under the rule of sin because in Christ we have been freed from its ruling power. When uh, Stuart Briscoe was a young man, he was drafted into the Royal Marines during the time of the Korean War. And he came under the, under the control of a, of a really uh, intimidating sergeant major. And this man was a, a very powerful and imposing and intimidating man. The kind of man, Briscoe says, who would, would le- left even the, the uh, toughest soldiers quaking in their boots. 
And eventually the day came when, when Stuart, uh, you know, completed his service, completed his time, and he was released from the Marines, and he went to the base, and he had his papers of, of his newfound freedom in his hand, and he was walking away from the base, and, and around the corner came this sergeant major. And he said at the, the moment that he saw him, his whole body tensed up, and, he, and his impulse was to, was to put himself into that, that uh, you know, that, that Marine position, that Marine stance of, of submission to your authorities and to, to take that posture again. But then he realized that he wasn't under that sergeant major's domination anymore. And so he says he did what just days before had seemed unthinkable. And that is he just walked casually past this sergeant major with a hand in his pocket and nothing more than just sort of a nod of his head to acknowledge this man who had been his superior. And he said it was a small thing, but for him in that moment, it was an act of, of absolute and, and, and pure and delightful freedom. Because he knew that the sergeant major had no power over him anymore. And that is a picture of what has happened to us in Christ. We have died to sin, Paul says. We're, we're no longer under its ruling power. This is the first reason that as to why we must not remain in our sin. Our, our bondage to sin has been broken. How could we ever think of, of, live, of living as those who are still bound by its rule? That's the first answer. The second answer that Paul gives as to why we must not remain in our sin is closely related to the first. He says we must not remain in our sin because we have been raised to new life in Christ. We see the connection in verses 4 and 5 where Paul says we were buried with Christ through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may, may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. So we, we don't just die to sin. We, we die to sin for the purpose of living a new life. As Paul said to the Corinthians, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new, has, the new is here. When we are united to Christ in faith, we become a whole new person. A new creation is born. And so everything is changed and we have, we have different desires and different values, different priorities and, and, and different masters and, and different goals, and different ambitions. We must not remain in sin, Paul says, because we have been made a new creation and, and raised to new life in Christ. If you, get, if you get married, you don't go on living as if you were single. At least I hope not. I mean, imagine going on your honeymoon and while your spouse is getting ready for an evening out, you're on a computer creating a profile for Tinder for online dating. How is that going to go over with your new Spouse. Not only that, but it just it doesn't make any sense. Or suppose you've been married for quite some time and you have a family and you, you sit down one evening with, with a, for a nice, uh, family, or a nice meal with your family and after the dinner is over, you, you thank your spouse for a lovely dinner and then you go out and head to the clubs to try to find a date. I mean, the thought is absurd. When you said your vows, you died to the old way of single life. Not that many of us were hitting the clubs up when we were single anyway, but you get the idea. 
That when you, when you are married, the, the, old, the old single self dies and you become a whole new, a whole new entity. The, 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 the two become one new flesh. You're one new entity, one new being together. You do life together and everything is different from that point on. And so too, it is absurd for Christians to live as though they're still under the rule of sin. Paul says, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, Paul says, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Count yourselves, reckon yourselves, consider yourselves. Remember, what Paul is saying is we need to remember who we are. We are those who have died to sin and been raised to new life. That is our identity. Let the married person remember their wedding ring and live like a married person and let the believer remember their baptism and live like one who has been given new life in Christ. As John Stott put it, he said, regenerate Christians should, be, should no more contemplate a return to unregenerate living than adults to their childhood, married people to their singleness, or discharged prisoners to their prison cell. Our union with, union with Christ has severed us from the old life and committed us to the new. And so Paul, that's why Paul says we must not Remain in our sin because we have died to our sin and because we have been raised to new life in Christ. That brings us then to the, the second question that Paul addresses in this text. And he, this is where he begins to, to transition into sort of those exhortations. Well, how should we live in, in light of this? The, 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 you know, the, the exhortation part of, of his letter for the first time, we encounter some commands in Paul's letter. So in light of our identity as those who have died to sin and been raised to new life in Christ, how then should we live? And the short answer to that question is that, that we are to live in a way that is consistent with who we really are in Christ. And again, for Paul, this entails two things. He says, first, we, we, we must not go back to the old slave master of sin. We must not give ourselves to sin. Paul says, in verse 12, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. You see, though we have died to the rule of sin, we can still willingly choose to give ourselves to it. That's what I mean. Sin isn't dead to us. We've died to its ruling power, but we can still choose to, to, put ourselves un, you know, to, to put ourselves in it, to give ourselves to it. We can give in to its evil desires and temptations. Paul's going to talk a lot more about that in Romans 7. We can offer ourselves to sin. And Paul says that we who are in Christ have no business doing that. He goes on to say in verse 14, For sin shall no longer be your master. Because you are not under the law, but under grace. And so Paul says we must not give ourselves back to the old slave master of sin. As those who have been brought from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, we, we must have an abhorrence of that old kingdom. We, we must never want to breathe its air again. 
We, we must hate it hate, and hate sin and hate sin as the evil tyrant that it is. Why would we ever want to go back into it? Into the, the whole atmosphere, into its bondage, into its rule. Why we, want, we should want to stay as far away from it as we can. As Paul said to the Ephesians, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. You were this, now you're that. You were darkness, now you are light. You were slaves, now you're free. So, what, so live as children of light, Paul says. And have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. Don't ever go back there again. Have nothing to do with them. Don't ever desire them. Don't ever go back to them. Don't ever engage in them. Don't flirt with the, the, the rule of, of, of this tyrant that sin is. And that's what Paul is telling us here in Romans 6. Have nothing to do with that old kingdom. Don't go back to the old slave master of sin. The second way that we are to live is that we are to offer ourselves to God. We're to live for his kingdom and his glory. We're to serve his purposes and to crave the the satisfaction that he alone can give. Paul says, do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. That's what we've just seen. But in contrast, rather, he says, offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Every part of yourself. Paul is calling a total consecration of our whole selves. We are to offer every part of who we are to God, to be used by him for his holy purposes to grow in righteousness. I'll give you just a few examples of from Scripture, we are to offer as instruments of righteousness our minds. Paul said to the Corinthians, we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And he'll say later on in Romans chapter 12, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see, what, what we do with our minds shapes who we are as Christians, as professing Christians, if we fill our minds with garbage, then we will manifest the garbage that we have brought in. If we fill our minds with worldly things, then we will be worldly Christians. And there's, there's few things more disgusting than a worldly Christian. If you read books and watch shows with trashy characters then you will begin to think and act like those trashy characters you, you do. But Paul says, we grow in righteousness. Our scripture says we grow in righteousness when we feed our minds with things like worship and, and scripture and God-glorifying music and, and thought-provoking podcasts and godly conversations. Those are the kinds of things that, that when we fill our minds with them, we, we begin to bear fruit and, and grow and, and have the joy that we long for. This is why uh, James Boyce said, this is a very practical recommendation, he said that for every secular book you read, you should read at least one good Christian book. Because if you're, you, you need to overcompensate, bring in the, the, the good to weed out the bad. Let us offer our minds to God as instruments of righteousness. We, we are also to offer as instruments of righteousness our eyes and our ears. Jesus 
said, if you're right in his Sermon on the Mount, if your right, right eye causes you to sin, then gouge it out and throw it away. Because it's better to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. He told his followers to repeatedly to, to listen carefully to his teaching and to grow in it. And so he said all, again and again throughout the Gospels, he had this sort of repeated refrain, refrain whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. And the, the, the idea is, Jesus often said to his disciples, you have been given ears to hear. You've been given by the Holy Spirit through, through your faith in me. You've been given and, uh, ears to truly understand the things of the kingdom. So use your ears to listen carefully to the things that I say, to grow in them, to be committed to them. So consider carefully what you see with your eyes and what you hear with your ears. What do you look at? What do you watch? What what do you listen to and hear throughout the day? Let us offer our eyes and our ears to God as instruments of righteousness. We are also to offer as instruments of righteousness our tongues. James said the tongue is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body. It sets the whole course of one's life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. If you could play back everything that you said in a given day or this past week or in a month or a year or a lifetime, what would you hear? Is that not one of the most convicting questions if you could sit down with God and in a sense we this is going to happen <laughs> and play back everything that you've said what would you hear we're so quick to use our tongues as instruments of wickedness harsh words spoken to our husbands or our wives words of disrespect to your mom or your dad lashing out in anger at your kids, tearing others down, telling little white lies and then justifying them, speaking words of of judgment or criticism or cynicism, spreading gossip and slander. Let's instead use our tongues to glorify God, to praise him, to encourage others to speak words of kindness and healing. Let us offer our tongues to God as instruments of righteousness. We're also to offer as instruments of righteousness our hands and our feet. Paul said to the Ephesians, anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands. Use your hands for a good purpose. Use your hands to advance the kingdom, that they may have something to to share with those in need. Use it for for good, not for idleness, not for for evil. And and Paul then um, later on in his letter urged believers to firm with your feet fitted with a readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Have gospel feet as you'll say later, later on in Romans, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. What do we do with our hands and our feet? Do we live with, with gospel-driven hands and with gospel-driven feet? 
Are we using our hands and our feet to, to go and make disciples of all nations, to go to, to neighbors, to go to colleagues, to go to friends who never heard, and to share the news with them? Is that how we're using our feet? Are we using our hands to build up the body of Christ and to advance his kingdom? Let us offer our hands and our feet to God as instruments of righteousness. And just to kind of circle back a little bit, all of this. So all of these, these exhortations, and, and we're going to do this again and again, because again, the, the uh, imperatives of faith flow out of the indicatives of grace. We have to keep that pattern in our minds. That's the way Paul structures all of his letters. The indicatives of grace come first. This is who you are in Christ. This is what God has done for you in Christ. Now this is how you are to live in response. And it's the same thing here. He's first laid out what God has done for you. He spent, been, you know, we spent weeks upon weeks upon the, on the theme of justification. And so all of this, all of these exhortations, the, you know, how we are to offer ourselves to God as instruments of righteousness flows out of our identity in Christ. That we, we don't offer ourselves to God to gain his favor. We offer ourselves to God because he has given us his favor. It is a critically important distinction to maintain. As Paul says, uh, he, he says, offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. We have, that's already been done. God has already done that in Christ. We have been brought from death to life. Now here's how you should live in response. Christ has broken the reign of sin over us. He has brought us from death to life. We, we live in the light because God has brought us into the light. We we, we rebel against the rule of sin because God has rescued us from its rule. We offer ourselves to God because God has drawn us to himself. We can perhaps think of Paul's teaching in this text if we want to kind of bring things to a close as we prepare for communion this morning. We can think of it in this way. It's a type, I suppose, a little bit of a parable of sorts. So imagine with me that you are a captive, and I, I know that you, you know, I know you know the point, you know where this is going, but what I want is for you to have the image in your mind. So imagine with me that you are a captive, and you're held in a camp under the rule of a tyrant, and the camp is surrounded by this, this massively tall and thick stone wall, and there is no way out. There's no way out. And the tyrant is a wicked man who doesn't care about you. In fact, not only does he not care about you, he despises you. He hates you. And he wants, he, he delights in your misery and he wants you only to be more miserable. You have nothing in life but the bare necessities. And even they are meager and pathetic. Just enough to kind of keep you living, but to keep you living in misery. So a little stone cell for a room. A hole in the ground for a toilet. No, nothing but the hard ground for a bed or a rock for a pillow. Stale, moldy bread to eat and contaminated water to drink. This is your life as a captive. And then one day, a good and, and a mighty king breaks into that camp and he sets you free. He takes you from that camp and he, and he brings you out. He takes you out of that dingy camp and he brings you into his beautiful kingdom and that kingdom is more glorious than you ever would have dreamed. 
He gives you access to all the, the wonders of his kingdom, all the, the wonders of, of his grace and his, his blessings and his mercy and his favor. And this, this king, he loves you. You have no idea why, but, but he loves you. He delights in you. He sings to you. He cares for you. And he wants what is best for you. And everything, everything he does shows that. He gives you a beautiful room to live in and, and feasts of, of good food to delight and feast after feast. I mean, one feast just leads to another one. The next, the, the one that comes is better than the one before. There's like, like, how is there so much magnificent food all the time? And glorious adventures to explore in his kingdom every day, a new adventure with more to see. And the adventures just get more extravagant and more beautiful. The land is, as you explore more and more of the land, it becomes more delightful every day. This is what the king has done. He has brought you from this camp of death and despair into his kingdom of life and hope. And of course, Paul says, this is what God has done for us in Christ. Before our union with Christ, we were captives in that dingy camp of darkness under the rule of sin. We had no way out. And Christ came as that good and mighty king and he broke through the wall and he brought us from that miserable camp into his glorious kingdom. As Paul said to the Colossians, God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. Now with that little picture in your mind, consider this, how absurd it would be to go back to the old camp, to want to go back to the old camp, to try to break through the walls, to get back in. Let us not return to the old slave master of sin. Let us instead live for God. Let us delight in the glories of his kingdom. And let us offer ourselves to him as instruments of righteousness for his glory. Let's bow together. Lord God, as we come before your throne in this time of silent prayer and response, as we prepare our hearts for communion, Lord, I pray that you would forgive us, O oh Lord, that you would search our own hearts and minds with your Holy Spirit to expose to us the ways that we have returned to sin and given in to its temptations and evil desires. I pray that you would hear our silent prayers of confession. And I pray, O oh Lord, that you would instill within us and breathe into us a renewed wonder of the glories of your kingdom and what you have done for us in Christ that we may desire anew to live as those who, as who we really are, those who have died to sin, died to the ruling power of sin and been made, raised to new life in Christ. Lord, hear our silent prayers this morning.
Lord Jesus, we praise you for what you have done. For you, O Lord, have broken into the camp where sin had held us as captives. And you set us free. Lord, we praise you. For it is only your death on a cross, taken upon yourself the penalty for our sin and imparting to us your perfect righteousness that could set us free. And now, by your Spirit, we not only have been declared righteous and the, the penalty of sin has been paid and, and canceled for us, the debt canceled, but not only that, Lord, we are able to grow in righteousness. For you, Lord Jesus, you break the power of canceled sin and set the prisoner free. Your blood can make the foulest clean. Your blood avails for me. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.